Hello, everyone. Lovely to see you all. A really warm welcome to everyone for this evening's debate. And, of course, from um, our TES colleagues as well, who are partners for this event series. And this is the second of our What If debates for this academic year. And back in October, we looked at the topic of kids failing mental health and schools. And as I'm sure you're well aware, many commentators see excessive high-stakes testing and assessment as an important part of that problem and indeed as an issue for teacher mental health and well-being and, of course, teacher retention. So I guess that's just one aspect of our current uh, testing and assessment regime that's been subject to question. But what about the impact on learning and its effectiveness in terms of assessing pupils and holding schools to account? That is our topic for this evening. What would our testing and assessment regime look like in an ideal world if we redesigned it from scratch? And we have four esteemed panellists to share their views on that question to get us started in our discussion this evening. And we'll have plenty of time, as usual, for questions and debate. Before I introduce the panellists, I'll just make the usual housekeeping announcements. We're not expecting a fire drill, so if the alarm sounds, we'll take the doors behind you out onto Bedford Way. And those who can't use the stairs should move to the doors on the audience's left, and a fire marshal will assist you out. And as you'll, you arrived, you'll have seen the posters showing the Wi-Fi login instructions. For tweeters among you, the hashtag is hash IOE debates. That's all one word, hash IOE debates. And that's also the way that our live stream audience can put questions and comments to the panel. And first of all, I have a question for you in the audience here in the room, for which I'll need a show of hands. Do we ask pupils to sit too many formal exams? Hands up if you think we do. Half, certainly not everybody. This is very so. This is a good setup for our debate. Uh, mixed views and people, I'm sure, uh, looking forward to the stimulation from our uh, colleagues here on the panel. So let me introduce them. At this side, we have Ruth, Ruth Dan, who is associate professor here at the Institute of Education. A former teacher and then teacher trainer, Ruth now researches assessment practice. Her particular expertise is formative assessment, and her most recent book, Developing Feedback for Pupil Learning, examines the ways in which feedback's used and understood by both teachers and students. Among her many roles, Ruth's involved with the Coalition for Evidence-Based Education, which seeks to support teachers' engagement with research, and she's also a school governor. At this end of the table, we have Tim Oates, who's Group Director of Assessment Research and Development at Cambridge Assessment. Now, Tim's published widely on assessment and curriculum issues and has been a regular advisor to the government on both. Much of his research is international and comparative, and his appointments have covered vocational as well as academic standards, so we're very pleased to be able to benefit from his breadth of expertise this evening.
A fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge, in 2015, Tim was awarded a CBE for services to education. And next we have Dave Meller, Director of Assessment and Curriculum at AQA. Dave works at the sharp end of assessment, seeking to understand what will make for effective assessment across different subject areas. He's been centrally involved in developing new GCSE and A-level qualifications and is a director of Ofsted... Uh, Ofsted, listen to me. It's on the brain. <laughs> Oxford International AQA Examinations, which is a joint venture with Oxford University Press delivering exams internationally. And then finally, Ken Jones. Ken is a lead policy advisor at the National Education Union and Emeritus Professor of Education at Goldsmiths, University of London. Having previously worked in London secondary schools, Ken later took up posts at the IOE and Keele University. As an academic, his main area of interest has been education policy and his publications, including Education in Britain, published in 2016, have charted the conflicts that have surrounded its evolution in the post-war period, not least policy on curriculum and assessment. So you can see how well-placed our panellists are to address the issues at stake and we're going to begin with Ruth. Ruth. If we were to start again with designing an examination system, we would need to establish some fundamental principles upon which to build such a system. So I've distilled what I think are seven key principles that might help us shape our examination and assessment system differently. Firstly, that all tests and examinations can only ever be a proxy measurement, sampling what somebody knows. All exam results will have measurement error. Exam boards try to minimise such error by giving careful attention to validity and reliability. However, in England, for GCSE and A-levels, we do not know how questions will affect different subgroups of the candidate cohort, as questions are not trialled in advance, and they might be leaked. But issues of uh, fairness and bias extend beyond the test paper itself, and should include consideration of the opportunities that pupils have to learn, as well as the quality of the teaching that they have received. Therefore, there is a strong imperative to interpret examination results from a position of understanding fairness and bias, and to encourage more, uh, to recognise more fully who might be disadvantaged in the assessment system. This means that any new assessment system must ensure that other sources of evidence are used alongside test scores and test items to be trialled in advance where possible as they are in key stage two tests. The second principle, that any test or examination needs to have a clear purpose. Only then can it be considered in terms of its fitness for purpose. Multiple and competing purposes may result in inferences that are not valid. Currently, examination results are used for many purposes. To predict future scores, measure the quality of schools, the quality of teaching, as well as for pupil certification. If results are to be used as a source of evidence in accountability, this is a very different purpose to, to pupil certification. If the purpose is accountability, not every student is needed to sit such exams. They can sample the student population 
and this may not necessarily need to be done annually. Data need only be considered in aggregate form and not on an individual pupil basis. So we need to decouple our current examinations for pupil, certific uh, for pupil certification from our accountability system. The third principle, the curriculum we want pupils to receive has to be understood and planned in relation to what we will examine. We need to reconsider what we value in education so that our examination system does not drive out what we value. Research repeatedly shows us that in high-stakes examination cultures, there will be teaching to the test. So we need to make sure that, we will, that what we examine is broad and we do not unnecessarily narrow people's learning. This will mean we need to develop an assessment system that can examine and record a broader range of knowledge and skills. So records of achievement and portfolios offer ways of capturing a broad range of pupil achievements. However, issues of, of, of reliability in terms of the quality of judgments would require a new moderation infrastructure. We also need to recognise that examining pupils in isolation from each other does not tell us much about the way in which they can work together. Research already established assessing collaboration skills needs to be continued and extended. The fourth principle, we need a broader system of examinations and assessment along different pathways, including vocational assessments that are valued equally rather than hierarchically and which help to promote rather than hinder social mobility. Currently, we've accepted and, and designed into the system what Joseph Fishkins describes as assessment bottlenecks. Only a proportion of candidates will get the necessary grades to take future pathways that open up beyond the assessment bottleneck. Others fall back into the bottle. We know that certain groups of children are more and some less privileged in our examination system. For example, children with summer birthdays are more likely to have compounded disadvantage from the point at which they enter the school system. And those who receive better teaching in their school experience and those whose parents have paid for coaching or private tuition are likely to do better. This leads me to the fifth principle. We need a system of examinations which offers challenge, but each candidate's outcome should not be dependent on the outcome of another. Our current GCSE and A-level system in England is both competitive and positional. To do well means others have to do less well. In our GCSE and A-level systems, grade boundaries are now statistically imposed through the regulator Ofqual's intention to stop grade inflation. We know that this year, with the many changes to the system, that grade boundaries were lowered to maintain standards. Therefore, we have designed into our system winners and losers. We need to make sure that our examinations and assessments are criteria reference and that we have robust ways of assessing achievement in relation to criteria. The sixth principle is about how we consider and position the student within our examination system. I draw here on the United Nations Conventions of the Rights of the Child and its relevance to our assessment system particularly Article 3, about the child's best interest, and Article 12, the child's right to participate. Now that our children do not leave school or training until the age of 18, 
we need to ask why we have high-stakes examinations at the age of 16. At the very least, we should be asking, is this in the child's best interest? And whose best interest is it in? In terms of the child's right to participate in decisions made about them, we needed to consider the extent to which pupils have any participation in the way that their examination results are used. And my final principle is the importance of assessment literacy for all stakeholders in the examination system. Teachers, pupils, parents and policymakers. We need better ways to ensure teachers are trained more extensively in the principles and practices of assessment. We need better ways of improving pupils' understanding of how the examination system works. And we need better ways to convey to other stakeholders what examinations can and cannot do. And how we should interpret the outcomes of assessments in meaningful ways. This will be a significant challenge which demands what the, uh, the whole of society considers how we want our assessment system to both construct and define our children. Thanks so much, Ruth. Uh, Dave. Thank you. Um, I think if you want to redesign the assessment system, um, the first thing you need to realise, it's a monumental task. It is absolutely massive and it's all pervasive. Even a relatively simple reform of GCSEs will take something like eight years. So if we want to redesign the assessment system, um, we need a bit of a crystal ball. We need to think about what the future is like because if we want to redesign, we want to redesign for something that's going to be fit for purpose in 10 years' time, not something that would suit the current system. So what sort of things are changing? I don't have a crystal ball, but here's some guesses and that might influence what you want from the system that you're putting in place. I think the first point is about staying in education and training until the age of 18. It raises the question about the purpose of assessment at 16. What's it there to do? It allows students to move through the bottleneck, to go on to do different sorts of qualifications, to move into careers. Do the assessments need to be the high-stakes written examinations that they currently are, or are there opportunities to assess things in different ways if the stakes are lower? That depends very much on whether or not those assessments also count towards the accountability regime that's in place, or are they just judging the performance of those students? If you're going to do something um, that just judges the performance of the students, what are the values and, and the, the skills that those students are needing? We hear from employers an awful lot about students not being ready for work, not being um, suitable candidates for the jobs that are available. What we could be looking at is assessing different sorts of skills, collaboration, teamwork, communication, problem-solving skills. Some of those skills are really hard to assess. They're not the skills that we traditionally assess in GCSEs. How do you assess collaboration, for instance, in a way that's fair for all of the students? What happens if one member of a group dominates? It can't be a one-off assessment. It has to be over a period of time. How do you generate the evidence needed? Could you have a portfolio of evidence of continuous assessment? Um, what use of technology could you make in order to gather that evidence and then how do you judge it? 
I think the second thing that is likely to change massively is technology. Um, my children are 14 and 16. My daughter, it's almost impossible to extract her mobile phone from her um, because that's the way she engages with the world. That's the way she engages with her friends. If she wants to find something out, she looks it up on Google. My son teaches himself how to do stuff. Not just fun things, but um, tech drawing package. I want to be able to do this. I'll teach myself how to do it. I go on YouTube. Children today are more and more digital native. They've been used to that. They've grown up with that. What does that mean for an examination system which is, in this country, traditionally based on pen and paper tests at the end of a two-year course of study? Children are not writing as much anymore. Schools are starting to issue students with one-to-one -one devices. They type more than they write now. Is an assessment that's pen and paper going to be a fair assessment when actually you are assessing them in a different medium, a different mode? If you're going to use technology, can you use it to capture different sorts of evidence? Mobile telephones, if you want to take a video or a photograph, it's a piece of cake. You can just do it. You can make it happen. Why wouldn't you make use of that opportunity if it's available? There is a however, though, and that's about accessibility and fairness. We already have the haves and have-nots in the education system. If you make technology part of the assessment scheme, then what are the risks of leaving people behind, those who are disadvantaged who don't have access to that technology? How do you manage the transition from pen and paper to a technology-based system if you're going to use it for your assessments that's fair. How do you ensure that the outcomes would be comparable for those students when you've got a mixed economy and they're doing some of it on pen and paper and some of it um, on on screen? It's a challenge. How do you overcome that? And you need good research and good evidence to make informed decisions. The next challenge, I think, is this divide between vocational and academic and this difference in parity of esteem. How can you design a system where no matter what it is you're good at, it's actually recognised um, and valued by society more widely, but the end users and so on. Um, and there are moves with the introduction of T-levels to increase the esteem of vocational qualifications um, in this country. But will it go all the way? Why can't a student do a T-level in engineering and an A-level in drama, for instance? Why can't you mix and match these qualifications? Why do kids get pushed down one route or another? Um, there are some challenges in how you deal with that. How do you resource that? How do you make it work? Um, the other issue with this is currency as well. It's important that qualifications have currency. They're used by students to move forward. Um, to go and do different jobs. We introduced diplomas a few years ago. A small number of students sat them, and they've now got these qualifications that virtually no one really understands what they mean. They've not, not got any currency. So what you need is a system that's stable, that grows and evolves and isn't a revolution. And those students come away with something that is valued for their lifetime, and so forth. Um, and that means employers have to understand the change. Moving to a new grading system for GCSEs, there's been a huge amount of work and still 50% of employers don't understand the new GCSE grading system. So you have to educate 
society at large. Um, and then the last thing I think that's really important, I've kind of focused on high stakes, what the end assessment looks like, that summative assessment. But actually there's assessment for learning. What's the purpose of assessment? Well, an assessment can be, I'm good enough to go on and do something different, which is that high stakes piece, or it can be more formative. What do I currently know? Where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? What are the gaps? Surely that is a much more powerful use of assessment in many ways, because that helps the learner identify their own weakness, the teacher to identify how they can improve the teaching and learning. And how do you then make use of that assessment, um, and it doesn't have to be high stakes, to actually say something about the learner's ability? The problem with GCSEs and high-stakes examinations or A-levels and other qualifications is they only ever sample a small proportion of the domain. And therefore, it's not a true reflection necessarily of the student's overall performance across the whole domain. Because some days the test, test things they're good at and some days it tests things they're a bit less good at. And you might get variation and variety. Now, if you can do assessment in a way that assesses their performance across the domain more widely and you can make use of that, you might get a more rounded picture of the student. It's challenging to do in high stakes examinations but maybe there's other forms of evidence that uh, you could gather and make use of technology, that continual assessment and that can feed into um, a picture of the student and what they're suitable for going on to study, to work and so on. Because that's what a lot of the qualifications are about. They're about opening doors for the next stage. Thank you, Dave. And uh, Tim, uh, so, so, sorry, we're going for Ken next. Thanks. Well, I'd like to thank um, the IOE for this invitation to utopian thinking, this <laughs> encouragement to dispatch some news from a society which does not yet exist. Um, what are utopias? What are they for? Well, a way of liberating thinking, a way of provide, providing a different perspective on the present and of lifting ourselves out of, above present horizons, constructed at the same time on the basis of some internal logic which acts as a discipline. In utopias it's not the case that anything goes. In his utopian fiction, um, News from Nowhere, um, the designer, writer and revolutionary socialist William Morris writes about a future society, a society created through revolution and through flashbacks presents um, a history of how it came to be. I'll proceed on that basis um, but I'm substituting for revolution um, election. So sometime in the third decade of the 21st century, the world of English education drew breath and paused for reflection. Schools had been through difficult times. Primary teachers had worked the rhythm set by Key Stage 2 SATs. Secondary teachers had their work steered by Progress 8. New public management techniques required the constant production for, of data for purposes of accountability, and schools were groaning under that strain. England in those days was a country whose own education policymakers considered to be a world leader, but strangely was regarded in other parts of the world as an outlier 
whose approach to assessment resulted in memorization, drills, and other aspects of rote learning, which had an excessive influence on teaching and learning. At least that's what the OECD found. Teachers were told that this was... Um, Teachers were told by their own policymakers that this was not just a, a reasoned educational choice, but an expression of national identity. We have the character of an island nation, David Cameron told European leaders in 2013, and we can no more change this sensibility than we can drain the English Channel. But tired of isolation, looking for some kind of professional restoration, Teachers had managed to turn the general election of 2022 into a public forum in which an underfunded and educationally impoverished school system was put on trial. The majority won by a coalition of parties committed to educational change opened the way potentially to major reform. But what kind of reform? England had been exposed to a long process of induced forgetting. What had happened before 1988 that's the year zero of educational policy. The involvement of teachers in developing practices of assessment and examination didn't form part of a collective memory. The rich body of work that sought to link assessment to learning theoretically and practically had no consistent place in policy debates. In these circumstances, the coalition took a bold decision. For if it had learned one thing from the governments of the past, it was to be bold at the beginning in setting out a course of policy and proceed incrementally on that basis. The government decided to suspend all statutory testing before the age of 16. It felt a modest objective. It restrained itself from going further. It would no longer rely on normative systems of progress measurement to hold schools accountable. It would rely on sample testing to identify national trends. It would expect schools to conduct self-evaluations of their achievements and to make these available to critical examination by local advisors. At the same time, it decided to reallocate educational resources to the encouragement of assessment methods which were more closely aligned to supporting students' learning. No longer would money be poured into baseline assessment, the phonics check, the multiplication check, SATs, and the myriad kinds of data tracking technology that schools thought they needed to invest in. What kind of learners do we want, asked the Secretary of State for Education, in previous life a primary school teacher. What kinds of assessment can help create such learners? How can teachers make clear to them the objectives of learning? How can they give feedback that makes a difference? How can we develop learners who know how to help themselves learn? These were the questions that professionals were asked to address. But the questions didn't get a soft landing. Secretaries of State emerged from the distant past to warn that they would grievously damage the standards agenda. Media criticism was constant. Teachers wanted to know where were the researchers, trainers and advisors who could help bring these ideas into being and give them practical life. To which the Secretary of State acknowledged that they're at the beginning of a long road. But it was time for England to rejoin the main, to reconnect research and education, to learn from other countries. The English Channel, she, she said, should not be a barrier to ideas. Out of the experience of others, we could lay the foundations of a modest new world of our own. At this point, if I were William Morris, I would depict to you the educational riches which eventually flowed from these bold changes. 
the empowerment of teachers in, as interpreters of policy and not its servants, the enjoyment of learners, the sense of education as a collective endeavour, not a fight for positional advantage. But I haven't got his pen, nor his soaring optimism, so I'll have to limit myself to saying that what the Secretary of State initiated and what the sector took up and eventually embedded and elaborated was a great deal better than what we have at present. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. And for lastly, Tim. Thanks, Ken. And Becky, thank you very much indeed for the invitation. Um, yes, I always use the word utopian. Um, I, I don't think it's utopian to, to consider the ideal. Um, and I think the ideal would be something which would be reflective of evidence, would be based on principles that have been commonly devised and were shared and deeply understood. And utility would play a large part of evaluating the nature of the system. I'm going to say a whole series of things that is, 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 I think it's probably going to fuel debate and really irritate an awful lot of people. I've got a whole series of points which I'm going to rattle through extremely quickly in my allotted time. Um, first of all, there are, there are apparently easy targets in this whole consideration of our existing arrangements in relationship to what we would want to see. There are apparently e easy targets. But some of the critique is actually very misplaced in my view. Get rid of accountability. Easy to say. The evidence is that all high-performing systems have it in a particular form. Those forms vary, scratch the surface of a high-performing system, and you will find it. Easy to say that England is the most assessed system in the world. Trouble is, empirically, it just isn't. The thing is that the limited assessment we do have weighs extremely heavily on that system, and so it feels that way. It's very easy to say, get rid of GCSE, and a great number of people are saying it. But one problem of that particular approach is it fails to understand that the ladder of assessments that we have in any education system express a whole series of inter interdependencies. We can have three-year higher education degrees because we have certain forms of assessment lower down. We can go into the detail of that in questions, I hope. In talking about accountability, I am not saying, by the way, that the use of assessment data is universally sound. That's absolutely not the case. And now here we go, in terms of 14 points, and they'll be delivered like machine gun bullets. <laughs> Firstly, one, we should move from any notion of what Dennis Lawton here in these hallowed halls called ambush assessment, sneaking up behind children, hitting them very hard with something they hadn't seen. Two, we should abandon outmoded or discredited models. Controversially, I'm going to say that includes Bloom's taxonomy, learning styles, and many, many fashionable areas of theory which knock around in the education system. We need to base our models of progression and ability on the science now emerging on human development. Kurt Fisher, Bill Schmidt, Jane Mellonby. We need to look at core knowledge, powerful knowledge, opportunity to learn, and access to demanding analytic tasks and highly skilled activities. Three, we need to be clear about what it is we need to assess. Purpose is everything. Paul Newton. And the construct focus. What is the list of things we want to assess? We need to assess things that are real and things that matter. And research can tell us that, about what those are. Core concepts in disciplines, critical reasoning, externalising behaviour. That's all there in the evidence record. We need to assess things that are real and matter. 
I believe this includes early assessment of, of executive function and complex language, and NFER are doing excellent work on the baseline test. Four, we need to relentlessly hunt down stereotyping and dysfunctional labelling. We, we must avoid locking in low expectations through mechanistic tracking systems, which are proliferating in all education systems, but particularly England. Five, we need to use assessment to understand individuals, not define them. Five, uh, sorry, six, we need to swamp education with high-quality questions, because I believe that's what assessment is. Asking really, really high-quality questions and setting really high-quality tasks. We need more assessment, not less. We need to swamp education with high-quality questions, and that's what Isaac Physics does, Mark Warner, and Lisa Jardine writes excellent work. We need research on item familiarity. We need to encourage thinking through the exposure to challenging questions, up cognitive college, uh, cognitive challenge, practice, and presentation of core, ish, core ideas in many different ways to children. Seven, we need to recycle and reuse high-quality items. We shouldn't just archive exam questions. We should use high-quality questions in pedagogy, explore individuals' thinking, identify and remedy misconceptions through the use of those questions in pedagogy, in didactic processes. Eight, we need to rehabilitate high-quality multiple choice. And that's exactly what uh, systems like ED do. Powerfully diagnostic multiple choice items which immediately reveal children's misconceptions so that we can act upon them in learning. But of course we need to retain, indeed we need to promote more, extended writing because that's about planning, it's about logical thinking, it's about acquiring complex language. Nine, we need to use the outcomes of assessment wisely and for the right purposes. Wait for it, scores are far more useful than grades. I'm not very positive about grades. Perhaps we can deal with that in terms of the discussion. Ten, we need to forget the idea that formative assessment is low stakes and formal assessment is high stakes. Actually, for learners, they can both be incredibly high stakes and have huge impact. Both should be of the highest quality. And to associate mm, low stakes doesn't need to be of the highest quality is committing a terrible, terrible technical error. Eleven, we need to increase the assessment literacy, absolutely reflecting other speakers. The assessment literacy of society, teachers, and particularly the users of the outcomes of assessment. Thirteen, in line with the research-based removal of practical work in science from contributing to grading, which was not uncontroversial in, in England, we need to remove any assessment requirements which present professional contradictions to educators. Okay? This is really important. Everybody must have an interest in making assessment as valid and as useful as possible for the purposes of learning and describing individuals' attainment. Fourteen, and finally, I haven't mentioned technology. How odd. That's because I believe that we need to drive technical development around assessment and learning through an understanding of sound assessment, not drive assessment through impressive technology. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> thank you. Let's take a moment to thank our speakers.
that's been absolutely fascinating and very stimulating, I think, hasn't it? We've um, traversed from the, the, the technical and the specific to the broad in scope and the utopian, um, absolutely, as we were, we were challenged to do. Um, and we had a huge range of different issues raised there, both ideas for the future and um, really uh, insightful analysis of some of the problems at the moment. You know, we've heard about issues around purpose and lack of clarity of purpose issues around curriculum content. We've heard about assess, assess, assessment bottlenecks, so these um, real uh, log jams in the system, which, of course, have profound effects for, for young people. And um, the issue about assessment literacy as well, which, you know, of course, may drag, drag us down into the present day, but I'm always amazed how often I hear these pronouncements about, you know, 45% of kids... Can't, aren't literate or, 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 or can't part of English, not realising that the system is norm reference. You know, of course, 45 can't pass if, if they're not allowed to. Um, so, so these issues and the way that they um, affect policymakers' thinking and indeed the thinking of, of, of parents and other stakeholders are really important. And we need, I think, debates like this um, in order to inform stakeholders as well as think forward about how we can do better. So, first of all, um, I, I think it was Ken that mentioned the looking across the water. Um, just turning to the panel, first of all, are there countries where this is done well? Maybe I, if, if I start with Tim and work backwards. Well, I think, I think complex, complex question and so relatively complex answer. If you take all the ingredients of, of assessment arrangements in countries, you'll see them arranged in very different ways in, in different national settings. The checks and balances, the approaches are very different. Uh, we do see the emergence of, of extraordinary problems. So Sweden, for example, um, did all sorts of reform based on the status of schools and neglected the issue of underpinning educational standards. So when you do analytic work, as a number of economists have done there, when you look at the outcomes of the transnational surveys, Pisa, Tim's, Pearls, you see a steady rate of decline. If you look at the uh, trajectory of teachers' assessment, you see it's on a steady uphill gradient. So there's something going fundamentally wrong in that system. So, so what one has to do is to examine the ingredients of education systems and see how they're put together in different systems. In some systems, I think they, they function extremely effectively. There are elements of, of the Shanghai education system, particularly in mass, that Debbie Morgan is looking at in a great deal of detail at the moment. One of the great assets of the form of pedagogy and, and didactic approaches in Shanghai is the use of rich questions on a continual second-by-second -second basis in the classroom, which actually expose children to the forms of items which they'll be exposed to in the formal assessment. Now, that changes all the kind of relationships I've been describing and really puts formal assessment in a very different kind of position within society. Um, rank ordering in Hong Kong was fascinating. All the kids were rank ordered in Hong Kong. I mean, all of them, in a single rank order. Had a very interesting result. Everybody was trying to climb over everybody else. Oh, terrible labelling. But actually, everybody got better. 
very interesting in terms of the relationship between the nation's attainment and other nations' attainment. So you, and then you have to look at the good and bad effects, the washback effects into society of that particular arrangement of the assessment. It's good and bad in all cases. Hmm. Thank you. Anyone else want to jump in with um, a model that they feel that is um, an exemplar for us? Interesting, in Singapore at the moment, so they have the mantra, um, teach, no, learn more, teach less, I think, uh, and to expand children's learning rather than shut it down for testing. They still have a lot of tests and they do very well in international comparative testing. But they're also into their curriculum, um, building in problem solving and broader ways of encouraging children to think, which also enables them to do better in high stakes testing. But they're actually changing the pattern of learning or beginning to, which is kind of a win-win, it seems, in their particular economy. So perhaps there's some interesting... Um, ways of foot there and, and the raising the profile of assessment for learning so children understand their role in learning as part of assessment. So it seems to be blending that summative and formative a little bit more where we seem to polarise them more here. Thank you very much. Well, let's turn now to the audience then and hear uh, your questions. So uh, we always do a cluster of hands, if possible. Um, and if you can, uh, if, if, if we are, you're, you're chosen to ask a question, if you can start by saying who you are and where you're from. So over to you, the audience. We've got a question here. Any others while we're going? Hi, uh, Nazreen from IOE Reading. Um, the World Economic Forum's uh, recent report on future of jobs suggests that employees will see an average shift of 42% in workplace skills between now and 2022. Human-focused and soft skills like critical thinking, leadership and complex problem-solving will become increasingly important. Uh, where does our current assessment system stand in this shift? Thank you so much. <coughs> Matt Hickman from Welcome. Uh, actually, a clarification from Tim. I just wanted to understand more about what you were saying about the removal of the assessment of practical science and the idea of professional contradictions. So, shall we start on uh, workplace skills? Ken, <coughs> to say that? Yes. Um, I think that um, we haven't got in this country, i.e. England, um, a system which adequately responds to the, the questions posed by reports of that sort. Um, I think, as I was uh, briefly indicated in, in what I was saying, that the effect on schools of particular kinds of testing is to force an emphasis on undesirable learning practices, overemphasizing recall of information downplaying the kind of critical skills that um, the WEF is um, evoking and which Dave mentioned from the platform here. I think there is a problem in English education. I think it is lagging um, in respect of um, like the ex 
experience and research globally, and that is an urgent issue for English educationalists and policymakers. I don't think we can be satisfied with what we've got. Thank you very much. Did anyone else want to join in? Dave, did you want to say anything about... Yeah, I think uh, the simple answer is that the current GCSEs and A-levels and even to a fair extent the vocational qualifications don't assess those sorts of skills because actually they're really, really hard to assess in a way that is compatible with a high-stakes examination system. Um, and I, I agree, I think the big gap here is how do you assess those skills? How do you produce reliable measurement of how good the students are at those skills um, in a way that um, is fair um, and a way that actually can be used by employers and um, others. So I think there is a, a, a potential challenge in that space. Thank you. And Tim, did you want to answer the specific question? Thank you. And if, if I could just add a couple of things to that as well. I mean, I, th I think you're absolutely right in, in terms of the, the kind of analysis we're seeing about the, the expectations of future employment. It's extremely important. Um, I, I, I do think that there are aspects of higher-order thinking, critical thinking and analysis in, in established disciplines that are assessed in our existing formal examinations. There are real problems, though, about tiered examinations, particularly in science and mathematics. Um, Bill Schmidt's excellent work on opportunity to learn suggests that many of the systems by which we triage people onto lower tier or higher tier uh, qualifications mean that they do not have access to the kind of things that we assess at the top end of the discipline requirements in the lower tier. And so again, as I refer to the self-fulfilling prophecy and locked in low expectations in my presentation, there are real issues about this emerging as we carefully begin to manage progression through automated systems and so on. Really problematic. So we've got, what, we've got to make sure that we have constant challenge and constant opportunity to learn the very things that you're describing. There is also a category, though, in that listing of things that are required to be anticipated to be required in, in future forms of production and society, which I would associate more with the general goods of education in terms of collaborative working and so on, which you can stimulate and promote and you don't actually need to relentlessly assess. You just need to assure that your education system is, is, is deriving it and giving all pupils an opportunity and learners an opportunity to participate. I think that's something we've forgotten. We want to assess everything which moves and everything that's important. And I don't think that's right. On, on the practical work, yeah. So, so very good researchers um, like Michael Rice and, and Abrams did really, really good work on what was happening in the use of practical uh, work within uh, science education. Brilliant quote from one of the papers which we cited in our, our, our paper which, which um, suggested the new model which has been adopted nationally. Teacher, to a group of kids in a science lesson, uh, quote, I'm going to be honest, note the word honest, I'm going to be honest, um, I, I, I'm honest with, with the kids. I tell them that this practical work associated with the exam is not related to science in any way. It's just a way of spending two weeks getting marks. Okay? Now, if that's, if that's the kind of honesty we want to create in our teachers, that's a real problem. Okay? Because the assessment is encouraging them to do something which is fundamentally at odds with their educational commitments 
and they're expressing that dishonesty of the different parts of the system to their pupils. I mean, it is extraordinary. So then we looked at the data and found widespread malpractice because that's the only way that you can explain the discrepancy in the distributions between the marks in the practical examination, part of the examination, and the marks in the examination itself. The distributions were profoundly different. And, um, of course, what we now have, if you read the TES, uh, September 2016, work done by researchers within this institution, Two of the three case study centres said there was widespread cheating in the practical work. Why did they do it? Why did they infringe their professional values? Because of the incentives and drivers in the system. That's why. They'd reached a local decision because of the pressures that had been created by the arrangements in the system. Now, I just think that's completely wrong. You must not con put conflicting pressures on professionals in that way. And it means that, that you're compromising their ability to discharge the role that you've allocated them into society. On the one hand, they were being told you've got to get maximum marks by any means possible. On the other hand, they were, being, they were supposed to operate as the objective, independent agent of an exam board. Uh, it only took a moment to look at that, to know that that was wrong. The final thing is this. What were practicals for? Because we were really confused about it. A lot of practicals were about deriving knowledge and conceptual understanding. That can be assessed through formal exams. So I think the current arrangements are really, really prudent. The, uh, uh, that's a, a really interesting point. I imagine it'll be uh, controversial. And uh, I, I suppose it's a classic uh, question about tails wagging dogs, um, which is the common problem with assessment um, in relation to teaching and learning across the board. Um, but then the question remains, doesn't it, about um, what you then start carving out of your assessments in order to avoid... Uh, perverse incentives and so forth and yet really that shows the power and the influence of our present assessment regime doesn't it and um, so some real questions there I think I feel we're getting into the, the meat of the debate now so let's have a round of further questions please good we've got a couple on this side one here did you Hi, good evening, and thank you to all the panellists for some really stimulating presentations. My name is Desmond Birmingham, from recently joined the Australian Council for Education Research in the UK. Um, as many of you will know, the ACR is currently working on behalf of the Scottish Government and several partners north of the border on delivering the Scottish National Standardised Assessment, which is all being delivered online, adaptive, and is explicitly not about accountability. It's about helping teachers and inform, improve learning in the classroom. I'd be interested to hear any panellists' view on a model that doesn't require crossing water, but which may be something just looking <laughs> north of the border for us to consider. Thank you. And uh, the lady here. Thank you very much. Is it on? Yeah. Okay. Um, Helen Blanchard, Education Consultant. Uh, I wondered, please, if Tim could clarify his point regarding the necessity of assessment at age 16... And also, what do the other panellists think assessment at 16 could look like, should look like, if it needs to exist at all? Thank you. Thank you so much. I think we'll take one more in the round, first of all. We had uh, Martin here and a gentleman at that. Um, Martin Mills from the, the IOE. Um, I guess when people were talking, I was reminded that one person's utopia might be another person's dystopia. Um, I... 
Becky mentioned at the beginning about the mental health of students being the last debate, and I didn't really hear much in the conversations about that. And I wondered about what kinds of assessment regimes might actually excite students, might make students hmm. want to go to school because they're looking forward to the assessment. So I wouldn't mind some comment on that and perhaps also about do we need to grade or use marks in primary school assessment. Thanks so much. Um, so, um, um, first of all, Dave, we, are you able to take Des's question? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think the, the real challenge is it's around the purpose that the assessment is used for. And I can see huge value in having um, uh, assessments that help the student understand what it is they can and can't do, and the teachers to identify how they can help those students, and also their own um, weaknesses and where they need to improve their own teaching and the support and guidance for those students. Um, I think the... Um, the challenge is how do you pair that with a progression? What we do at 16 and at 18 is we set some hurdles that say the students have to achieve this in order to get over this hurdle in order to go on and do further study or work or whatever. And you need to differentiate in, in that space. And there is an element of competition in, in that. Um, and I think pairing this um, system where it's about assessment for learning to enable the students to improve and understand versus actually the capabilities of the student to go on and do further study that, or, or a career that has monetary value attached to it and so forth makes it quite complicated and quite difficult um, to, to actually achieve those two together. And I don't think there's an easy answer to it. Um. Thank you very much. Um, Ruth, are you able to answer Helen's question? Uh, what would happen at 16? Uh, if any of you have looked at, and it kind of hits Martin's as well, social media over the summer last year and to see what our young people were saying about their experiences of taking both GCSE and A-levels. Uh, I asked my question, uh, you know, is this in the child's best interest and whose interest is it in? Um, as a kind of serious uh, concern. Um, I think teachers and students need to know how they are learning and um, where, where they are in terms of their attainment, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a high-stakes test. Uh, it, I think assessments can be used very productively to inform um, everybody's understanding of where children are without actually having to use those results in accountability measures. So I think there, there is a need for assessment at 16, but may, may not be in the, in the way that we have it now. And it may not be with the hierarchy of subjects that we now have in terms of what's valued and what isn't valued. And my other point about opening up different pathways so that children aren't seen uh, as, uh, as in a better position if they're taking one set of qualifications as opposed to another. So it's about having a range of assessment that are equally valued, that children can learn from them and understand their own progression and their future pathways, as can teachers. Uh, and it will give them some certification. Uh, but, and it could also be, the first point, adaptive. So it actually shows what children can do and achieve rather than set up a proportion of them to fail. Thanks, Ruth. And Ken, did you want to take Martin's Yes, I'd like to respond to, to Martin. Um, 
because I, I think it raises an issue or set of issues that we may be moving away from, which is the importance of dealing with these questions as questions of well-being, questions with a strong ethical dimension, which cannot be answered as it were, solely in terms of the effectiveness of assessment systems in relation to particular cognitive goals. I think that one of the areas of the curriculum which grievously suffers as a result of the particular emphasis we have on assessment and accountability, primary and secondary, is the area of um, art, drama, um, physical education more generally. Um, I think we need to look to that area to find thinking about the kinds of educational practice and assessment practice which might broaden the frame a bit of our discussions. So the studio as, as a kind of locale, as a, a venue for collective practice devoted to improvements, the intrinsic improvement of particular kinds of performance. There are very interesting sets of issues raised there. Right? What might make students want to come to school to be assessed is the sense that they're participating in something beyond themselves with a collective chance of self-improvement, a collective chance in which you know, the achievement of one contributes to the achievement of all. These are kind of ambitions I don't think we should lose from the school system. I don't hear them in discourse about assessment. I do know of the complexities of arguments around the assessment of creativity. I think they need to come further back into the discussion if we're to restore to it the kind of full dimension that it needs around issues of, 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 of well-being. Did any other panellists want to come in on the issue of um, well-being? No. <laughs> I, I, I think, um, I mean, for me, I think it's... There's been strong links between new GCSEs and the impact on students' well-being. Um, but I think that... Um, that pressure isn't coming from the new GCSEs per se. It's actually coming from the expectations of the system as a whole. And that's what's generating the pressure. So um, my daughter going through school at the minute is on a flight path between where she came in and the expected grade at the end of it, irrespective of the fact that she grows and uh, grows up. Um, her interests are changing. Her ability in some things progresses quickly in some times and not in others. It's the way the system is used to generate the expectations and the stakes for the students at the end of it, um, and in part the stakes for the schools as well, that then drives the teachers to drive the high-stakes nature of the assessment. Um, so I think the two are intrinsically linked. The new GCSEs threw in a whole load of uncertainty, which then exacerbated that problem perhaps, but they weren't the root cause of the problem itself, I would argue. So um, I think we need to step back and look at the system as a whole, not necessarily qualifications per se. Hmm. That's really useful, Dave, and brings into play the um, issues about tracking and tiering that appear um, within the scaffolds in our system, uh, uh, um, as Tim was mentioning earlier. You wanted to come in as well, Tim. Yeah, well, I think 
I'll link this issue of well-being to, to a consideration of the way in which different aspects of uh, assessment systems um, fit together, and then deal with the, the GCSE point, because I think they, they do segue nicely into each other. Um, so so you, you, you raised the, the issue of, of Singapore and, and the, the, the real concerns there about the, the washback effect into primary education from the primary school leaving examination, the PSLE at 11. I didn't mention in my outline of, of, of an ideal set of arrangements the, the critical role that models of ability and progression have on the shape of education systems and assessment systems. So Singapore was very... Was predicated on partially on a Confucian model, every child capable of anything depending on the effort they put into learning it now it's presenting to them, but also on the notion that by the age of 11 you can, you can do some determination of, of different routes. So that was why the PSLE was put in place. Now they're aware that there's such a, a, an issue about washback into primary education, they, they have made that an object of policy concern and they are very concerned about the impact that that's had on, on the nature of the learning. And, and, and that segues straight into GCSE. I mean, GCSE is, is important because we have only three examinations roughly at around 18, and highly specialist education. That's important so that we can have three-year degrees, a very three-year higher education, first degrees, of very, very high quality. If we had many more subjects, we'd probably need four-year degrees. And who would be paying for them? families. Now, I'm not saying that we, we don't need to critically examine constantly all parts of the system. Of course we should. But I'm just saying you can't take up one bit without thinking the, about the way in which they relate. And on A-level, you know, no other country's got A-level. Well, apart from Finland. Because actually they study 11 subjects or so, but they only take four exams. And they're just like A-level. Um, of course, USA's got A-level. AP. People do three or four of them. It exempts them from the first year of four-year degrees. Look at the questions in the papers. They're just like A-levels. Germany's got A-levels. You do the abitur, 13 or 14 subjects, and you take, wait for it, four exams. And they're just like A-levels. But the crucial difference between, the, between particularly Finland and Germany as our own system, they don't make the stupid mistake of building their curriculum structure out of qualifications. Mm -hmm. They have a curriculum structure. And then the things that children are beginning to gravitate towards, which they see as being important for their progression, are the things that they focus on in terms of certificated elements, which then unlock the next stage of progression. That's a mistake we make. We just construct our, our curriculum in schools out of the building blocks of examinations. And therefore, the broader goods of education, the underpinning curriculum principles, suddenly fall away. And that's a real problem. That's interesting, coming from somebody from an exam board. But we're really worried about that, because that's not the purpose of GCSEs, and that's not the purpose of A-levels. No, that's very helpful. It comes back to my tail and dog again. So, further questions? Gentleman here, a lady here, and then, oh, lots of hands going up now. So, thank you. Okay. So, somebody's already got the mic, apparently. <laughs> All right, thank you. Well done. Please. Uh, Angela Hopkins, NFER. Um, Picking up on Ruth's point about, I think you mentioned a concern about caps on the percentages of students getting GCSE grades. Um, 
And if you are working on the new national reference test, which has been brought in to bring in extra evidence to inform um, GCSE grading, do you feel that's a positive development? Thank you. Um, gentleman here. and formerly um, Principal Primary Inspector in Hampshire. I'd like to make a point about primary education. Dave mentioned monumental change. I think a few years ago, and still working its way through, was a monumental conceptual shift in primary education, which was when assessment levels went and age-related expectations came in. But it's interesting to note what happened as a result of that. Um, and I think what... I think external accountability um, agencies such as Ofsted, trusts, local authorities couldn't let go of the idea that somehow children must progress along a linear route uh, that would demarked by levels. And so what you got was a reconfiguring of the opportunity and as a result um, what Tim called the, the awfulness of Structural, uh, structural tracking, mechanistic tracking. Mm -hmm. um, I think this was, so that we created, I think, a whole new edifice, which is levels by another name. Yeah, thank and you. And you get a whole new language, I think, around things mm -hmm. like data capture. But I think what it actually means when we talk about data capture is just short-term learning rather than deep and embedded learning. Hmm. Thank you for that. And um, I think there was a lady. Yes, thank you. And right in the middle there, can you see? Pop up your hand for Kate. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for all the panelists. And I'm Pearl from Myanmar, Smile Education. Um, as you might know, our Ministry of Education is working on reform for both uh, assessment and education system in public school in nationwide, uh, such as um, curriculum reform, yearly, primary to secondary, and higher education as well, and assessment and teachers' competency. So, as you know, there are many challenges, areas that need to be considered for our students' learning, passive learning, environment into active learning. And question is, why didn't form the reliable model system of assessment in developing countries? And another question is, what would you suggest? How should we educate parents, students, and teachers and educators? <laughs> Thank you very much. That's Thank quite you. a big question, that. Thank you. Um, so, Ruth, did you have um, a response uh, to Angela on um, GCSE and capping? Yes, I think. I mean, this year, it's a perfect storm, isn't it? We've got um, the changes to the, to the grades and the numbering system. Uh, we've got the government's concern that we've got grade inflation, and apparently our grades go up, but our position in PISA doesn't. So we've had to do something about that. So most exam boards previously have, have had a balance with a, a, a statistical uh, decision of grade boundaries, along with professional judgment from the, um, from the examiners. Uh, and this year, that's shifted to more of a statistical uh, boundary. So it is very much to keep standards similar year on year, when we know this year that was very difficult to do. So trying to keep the percentages quite similar in particular grades. So, I mean, that, from my point of view, is, is highly problematic. When schools are all the time have been told they have to get more people to pass, the system won't allow that. So how on earth that is meant to work, um, it beats me. 
Uh, and therefore, you know, that was my comment about having a criteria reference system where, you know, it doesn't matter how many percentages are, are in each, each area. And so that would be my answer there. You need to think about those, those boundaries very differently and, and what it is they're, they're saying and proving. Thank you. And Tim, did you want to come in very quickly? Just, just briefly. I mean, I think, I think that the reference test is going to be a, a useful addition to the basket of data we need to take into account when we, we take the decisions about where the standards are to be placed each, each year. I mean, comparable outcomes, I mean, at parties, people ask what I do, they get bored if I describe what I do. If I was to try to explain comparable outcomes to them, um, they, would, they would die on their feet of boredom. It is extremely complex and technical. Um, the, the main issue about comparable outcomes, and, and Paul Newton writes very eloquently about this, Comparable outcomes are there to protect the interests of, of, of students in times of change so that standards can be bridged when you have changed aspects of qualifications. Uh, and therefore you use them during that time and then you make a very conscious and deliberate policy decision as to when you take other forms of evidence into account in respect of where you place your standards. And I think Ofqual has been really responsible as a regulator because they said very openly, yeah, we will review the period of time for which we will use, continue to use comparable outcomes as a means of standards determination in formal examinations. And I think that's exactly right. I think that the reference test is a useful, a useful addition to the basket of data, but it won't be, it won't, it won't be infallible. We know that. And, and, and Tom, Tom Benton in Cambridge did an excellent work on this. We found a very unstable relationship between um, overall scores in maths and 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 principal language and other disciplines in other nations. So it may not be a stable relationship in our own. It's a useful addition, but it won't be definitive, is my view. Thank you, Tim. Um, we got the question from um, John around levels, and I think that uh, you wanted to say something there, Ken. About primary? Yes, and about data capture, data tracking, if I may. Um, I recall in the film Casablanca, the character played by Claude Rains, Captain Renault, who um, is the regulator of um, a cafe in which illicit gambling is happening. He allows it to happen. He makes his money from it. Um, when it's exposed, he says he's shocked to hear that gambling is taking place in this establishment. I, I think that um, policymakers are in the position of Captain Renault. They, they deplore practices which arise directly, directly, from the systems they've put in place in schools. If you establish high-stakes testing, if you ensure that schools will, as it were, live or die by the results um, of that testing, then you're creating perverse incentives, which, unfortunately, um, schools will gravitate towards. Tracking is warned against in the latest DfE reports. Um, the working group on, on data management uh, suggests that it is not a good practice for schools. Um, I, I welcome that, but to think you can kind of eradicate the practice by, by well-meaning um, kind of steering from on high, I think is mistaken. This is something that is embedded. We could, I'm sure you visited many schools in which um, they argue the necessity of what's happening because it's, it really is um, an important issue what results the school come up with and no stone can be left unturned. No possible um, technology which might 
help in the achievement of high scores at Key Stage 2 can be easily neglected. Thank you, Ken. And then just very, we've only got a couple of minutes left, um, but very, very quickly to answer this broad question. Uh, Ruth and Dave, did you have anything that you can offer to Pearl in terms of uh, 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 for encouraging teachers and parents in the Myanmar education system? I think to start with, I think you have to decide what you value in your education system and build a curriculum around that. I think that needs to be your starting point, rather than trying to think how we're going to assess them. And if you start with that, I think you've got a good foundation on which to go further. I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's, that's good. I, I think the, um, the key learning from, say, the changes at GCSE is don't underestimate how much effort is required to communicate the change Whatever you decide the change should be, um, you can go out a hundred times with the same message and there'll still be a very large proportion of the teachers who don't know or um, the, the parents don't understand and so on. And I think that's really, really critical because actually how do you get backing for whatever change you're trying to do? It's actually you get engagement and you get understanding. And if you can, if you can do that, then I think you stand a chance of it embedding successfully. Though. That, 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 those are good, sharp answers for you, I think. Now, we've had, um, we've, we've, we put a question out to Twitter earlier. Uh, the question for the poll was, what would you most like to change about key stage testing? It's a bit of a leading question there, but a good one. Um, and you won't be surprised to know that of the different options, the frequency, the context, and the accountability... Uh, the largest portion went to the accountability with over half um, respondents saying that. And we've had really good debate um, on social media, both on, so on Facebook and Twitter. Um, a couple of comments. Um, so Peter Bernard has, has suggested scrapping and DIY as options to the panel. Um, and we've had some good questions about uh, the need for school leaders to be brave here, um, suggested by um, Steve Mills, and, and really the challenge uh, for, for leadership from the sector on these matters, and various um, uh, uh, more specific and challenging questions around, for example, how do you account for uh, special educational needs, um, English as an additional language, and so forth, as, as building into testing. So it looks as though the, um, the, the panel uh, stimulations have provoked really good debate, not just in this room. Room, uh, but on social media and we hope elsewhere in the sector. I'm really sorry we don't have more time because I know there were a lot of hands beginning to go up at the end there, but I hope that you'll be able to carry on your discussions this evening. Uh, thank you for your brilliant questions and let's take a moment to thank you, the audience, and our panel here again for a good debate. <laughs>